is Ray Dinger. I'm Glenn Macnow. It is a brisk Sunday, final Sunday in February here in beautiful Philadelphia. Uh, coming up, by the way, at uh, around 11.25, what we're watching, we pushed it off from yesterday because we had uh, we wanted to celebrate James Harden's debut during our show yesterday. And, Ray, I'm going to review a four-part documentary I watched, just finished watching on Showtime, uh, W. Kimu Bell on um, Bill Cosby, which is compelling, and I'll mm. tell you why. Uh, and at noon, the best of Tell Us Your Story, definitely an episode you're going to listen to now, but... We're going to be doing this once a week from now up until the NFL draft. It is the Ray Dinger NFL Draft Preview. Well, this week is the uh, beginning of the NFL Combine, which is the annual uh, gathering of the college prospects, and they they all go to Indianapolis. This might be the last year in Indianapolis. You know that, right? No, where are they going? Uh, they're going to take it on the road. They're going to make it like the NFL draft. Yeah, they're so smart. So they're going to take. They can this. monetize it. They sure will. Yeah, so they're going to take it all around and 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 have the NFL Combine in all the different cities and uh, sell tickets and put it on TV and you know market it the same way they market the draft. They are so good at this, the NFL. And we, you and I talked about this before the show because we have Elliot Shore Parks going after WIP, looking right. forward to his reports. And you used to cover this thing, but when you did, it was very different than now. Yeah, when I first started covering it, you the press wasn't allowed. I mean, we weren't allowed in the building to watch the drills. We had to sort of work the hotel lobbies and wait for the guys to come back and and hide behind the potted palms and <laughs> jump out and grab them and ask who looks good. I mean, that was how it was done. And then somebody finally said, well, this is silly. If the press is that interested, let's let them in and put it on television and make money off it. Oh, the ratings they get for watching people dance around cones is Unbelievable. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. So, uh, I They're mean, smart. Boy, they are so smart. Yeah. I mean, the NFL Combine stuff gets higher. The NFL Combines on TV get higher ratings than, like, NBA regular season. Yeah, games. I know. It's crazy. But yep. anyway, it's all it's all getting underway, and it'll be everywhere soon. So just to give you a little just a little taste of what's coming up uh, and, and some idea, a little preview of some of the nonsense that you're going to hear, one of the big stories that's going to come out this week uh, and it's going to be talked to death, is Kenny Pickett, who's the uh, best, who I think is the best quarterback in this draft, probably going to go uh, the number one quarterback taken. But there's going to be a lot of talk about the size of his hands. Yeah. There's, <laughs> I mean, everybody is now all, con- they're now talked themselves into believing that Kenny Pickett's hands are too small, uh, that they're going to measure small, uh, and that as a result that his stock in the draft is going to drop, which to me is utterly silly. But I guarantee you're going to be hearing a lot about it because it started already at the Senior Bowl down in Mobile. Uh, the week of Senior Bowl practice, Kenny Pickett was having great practices and he played really good in the game. But all the talk during the week was, oh, yeah, we measured his hands. His hands are too small. It is so nonsensical. I will tell you the last quarterback in the draft where this was an issue, where there was a lot of conversation about, oh, geez, I don't know. I think his hands might be too small. Smith? It was Joe Burrow. Oh, Joe Burrow. Now, do you think okay. Joe Burrow has trouble playing in the NFL? I don't think so. And before him, the other guy who was ta- to talk about, gee, I, I think his hands are, might be too small, was Matthew Stafford. And these were the two quarterbacks of the Super Bowl this year. These are two guys that got their quarterbacks of the Super Bowl this year. So I don't think the hand size was an issue. But I guarantee you, you are going to hear that discussion with Kenny Pickett from Pitt, and it's not going to matter a bit. When it's all said and done, he's going to be a first-round draft pick. Probably a top 15, maybe even a top 10. But in my view, he is, hand size regardless, he is the best quarterback in this draft. And the other thing that's going to be coming out of this 
uh, and I think this is really interesting, is going to be the testing uh, and the evaluation between the two best pass rushers, Kayvon Thibodeau and Aiden Hutchinson. Mm -hmm. um, these are the two guys, to me, are they are 1-1-A in terms of the best pass rushers in this draft. And a draft that is very deep and very strong in pass rushers. Thibodeau from Oregon and Hutchinson from Michigan are the two best. And a lot's going to happen here when teams are going to go through the whole testing process, the testing, the measuring process, the eval that part of the evaluation. And this is where I think Thibodeau, when t teams begin to evaluate him, whether he works out in Indy, which he may or may not, but he'll certainly have an individual workout, I think he's going to test great. He's going to run great. His vertical is going to be great. He's going to all those tests. I think he will test out extremely well. I think he will probably test out better than Hutchinson. But then it comes down to the decision of, okay, if he tested better, but if you look at the tape, who's really the better player? Mm -hmm. Who's the more consistent player? To me, that's an easy one. To me, that's Hutchinson. But I'm telling you, whether it begins in Indianapolis, some guys work out, some guys don't. But at some point, he's going to have both of these guys are going to have individual workouts. All the teams are going to be there. All the teams are going to test them. They're going to run their 40. They're going to do their verticals. They're going to run the cones. They're going to do all that stuff. And I do think the Thibodeau will probably test better than Hutchinson. And some teams may move him ahead of Hutchinson on the board. Mm -hmm. But if you go to what I always go to, look at the tape. Watch him play. If you watch him play, Hutchinson is far, by far the better player. But don't be surprised if after all the testing and all the evaluations go by, that when you come into the draft, some draft boards are probably going to have Kayvon Thibodeau of Oregon as their top pass rusher. You give me the choice, I'll take Hutchinson every day. Okay. Um, anybody in particular that Eagles fans might want to be looking at with those three picks they have in the middle of the first round? Well, uh, I think it depends on, on your position. Again, I, I'm, I am one of the people that's in favor of keeping the picks and drafting defensive players and rebuilding the defense because – I really do feel that this is an extraordinarily strong draft on defense. And for a team that really needs to rebuild its defense and get younger and faster on defense, you have a tremendous opportunity this year to really change the face of your defense here. And so that's what I would do. And with my first three picks, and they're, again, they're picking 15, 16, 19, yeah. I mean, you're in prime position right there to get yourself at least one good pass rusher, one really good pass rusher, a linebacker, and a defensive back. Address it at all three levels. And one of the guys that I really – I know you're not going to get Hutchinson. Right. You're not going to get Thibodeau. No. They're no, going no, to be no, gone. No. But I, I really like Jermaine Johnson. I really like him. I mean, he's a, he's a kid that's really come on, started at Georgia, transferred to Florida State, had a big year at Florida State, and then went down to the, uh, went down to the Senior Bowl in Mobile and just tore it up for a week. I think he's a guy that's probably going to be right there in that 15-16 range. Really good pass rusher. I like him a lot. And I've been saying it before, and I'll be saying it again. Uh, Nicobe Dean to me. Yeah, you is, mentioned his name a lot. a terrific linebacker yep. from, from Georgia. Um, Devin Lloyd is the other linebacker from Utah. Um, he's also a very good player. People can have an argument about who's the best linebacker. I would take Dean, but I could certainly live with Devin Lloyd as well. All right, good stuff, Ray. And we will be doing that every week coming up to the By the way, I'm looking at a story here about quarterbacks' hands. And I guess these the – the thing they look at is the average size for an NFL quarterback is a 10-inch wingspan of your hands, mm -hmm. right? And they say among those whose hands measured under that, small hands, mm -hmm. Aaron Rodgers, Tony Romo, Mike Vick, Patrick Mahomes. 
Right. And Patrick Mahomes, when Joe Burrow went through all this stuff a year or two years ago, right. wrote, uh, he sent, he, he put out a tweet specifically to Joe Burrow that said, don't worry, my hands are doing all right so far. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. So, so there. So there you go. One of the one of the all time great passers, one of the best long deep ball passers that I've ever seen, was Norm Van Brocklin, who won a championship here with the Eagles. Yeah, and he had famously small hands. I yeah. mean, he had tiny little, hands. little doll hands. In fact, in fact, his nickname was Stub Stubby oh, because his geez. fingers were so small. So I mean, they could have a golf show. So that's why this whole nonsense. I mean, they're going to do it again, and they're going to do it, and it's going to drive Kenny Pickett crazy. Uh, and it may influence some people's willingness to draft him or not. But to me, it, it's very simple. If you watch the tape, and listen, he's a guy that played at Pitt. He played in cold weather. He played in bad weather. Mm-hmm. It's not like he played in a dome or in the south. I mean, he's played in enough bad weather and thrown the ball in enough bad weather that if the hand size was an issue, you would have seen it by now. Okay. Uh, let's talk to Sam in Langhorn. Hey, Sam, you're on with Ray and Glenn. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey. Just want to say your show is the best show on WIP. All right, very nice. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Sam. However, I disagree with both your uh, suggestions about baseball, improving baseball. Number one is baseball presently constituted, raising the strike zone, which I always was in favor of. With this launch angle of business, I think you'll see more strikeouts. Secondly, as far as the shift goes, my idea is to deaden the baseball. If you deaden the baseball su- sufficiently, not to eliminate home runs. However, a 160-pound guy hitting a 450 home run is ridiculous. So yeah, but I don't know angle. how that relates to the shift. Well, well, once you get rid of this launch angle and home run swing, ball players starting in high school and college were going to have to adapt to hit the ball and make contact and possibly hit to the other field and bunt and steal bases. So you you. Yeah, but and I hear you, and I think you have a bit of a valid point, but I also think that you have to look that it isn't just guys going for home runs. I don't know if you heard my Freddie Freeman quote before. Freddie Freeman hits home runs, but he's a line drive hitter. He's my favorite favorite ball player. Okay, and did you hear what he said about the shift? No, not, I don't think. Okay, that's okay. In Jason Stark's story uh, in The Athletic, which is what I was reading, Freddie Freeman said, uh, you know what, let me just see if I can find his quote real quick. Yeah, sure. So I can, okay, he said, um, you're talking about that rover in right field. He said, it's very rare that I hit one into that shift. It's the one up the middle is the one that gets me. Because they what they do is they'll play two guys on the right side and the shortstop behind second base. And he said, um, I've been taught my whole life to hit a line drive up the middle, and now I'm out. If you eliminate that, if you keep the shortstop on the left side of the bag, I will get more hits. Line drive hitters will get more hits. It's not just the Ryan Howards anymore who it affects. Right. It, they they do, and thanks for the call, Ray. They now have so much research on every batter, on every pitch, that they'll know. Oh, it's Ray Dinger. It's a three and one count. If we throw Ray Dinger a curveball in a three and one count, he's likely to hit it to exactly this spot. Mm-hmm. So we'll have all of our fielders move to that spot. Right. The science, the math, baseball. Baseball, unfortunately, and I, listen, I'm not. I don't want to rant against analytics because I've always valued it. But baseball turned itself over to math and stopped being about art and about sport. And so, therefore, they, they know so well what you can do, what you can't do, that they can just stop you. Sure. And that's, that's the, the, to me, the real curse of the shift. Yeah, and, Sam, and Sam's point about the, the high strike, the, the letter high strike with the launch angle swing today, that guys will have more strikeouts. That's not exactly the pitch I'm talking about. I'm saying 
take the strike zone up there. Give that, you know, create, make that the top of the strike zone. But my big problem is the strike zone has so shrunk now that you see, if you're watching from the center field camera, there are pitches that are belt high. Yeah. That are called balls. It's unbelievable. I mean, they're belt high pitch. That and that's you know that's that's a pitch you got to swing at. That's a pitch that I don't care what your launch angle is. If you get a belt high pitch and you want to swing at it, you can hit it. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm not necessarily talking about pitches at the letters, which I'll give you that too. But the one that kills you is a, a pitch at the belt level that's called a ball. That shouldn't be. All right. Can I give you another change I want to see? Sure. And this, again, I'm stealing all my material today from our friend Jason Stark. Well, I can't think of a better place to steal it. <laughs> right. kind of inspired me for this. He wrote a piece uh, a couple weeks ago about what the NFL playoffs should be teaching baseball. And it was kind of he looked at different things that were occurring when the NFL was having these stretch of great playoff games. Right. And kind of saying, you know, baseball might want to look at this. And one, and, and look, I'm certainly not the first to say this, nor is Jason, but it's a really good one. Start your postseason games earlier. Right. Make it that every postseason game doesn't start with the first pitch at 8.25 p.m. And so, and games are three and a half hours. And so the game's ending at midnight. Right. Never, never mind 12-year-olds staying up for it. Most adults aren't staying up to midnight to watch the end of a baseball game. Right. And I know you're not going to start every postseason game at 1 in the afternoon like when I was a kid, right? I remember the best teacher was the one. When you were a kid, did they used to have the one black and white TV in school and they would, like, push it into the room? No. Okay, well, we had that. <laughs> we, we, but the Sorry, right? I forgot you went to school at the Flintstones. The best we would, the best we would do is we would get the radio. Okay, well, we had a, they had the TV because they would show you the, you know, educational stuff on the TV in class. And so they would wheel the – if you had a really cool teacher, he or she would wheel the TV in because it's the World Series and the, you know, the Orioles are playing the Dodgers or whatever, and the game starts at 1 o'clock with Joe Garagiola. And they'd wheel it in, and, like, it's like, okay, everybody, you know, kind of – I'm sure it was more for the teacher than for us. The teacher's probably a baseball fan, but we thought it was for us. It's like – Everybody, you know, kind of take out your books and you look at the books, but you, you can watch the game too. And it was great. Anyway, we're not going to go back to that, and that's fine. But maybe like the Sunday World Series games. Well, there's football, so you're not going to do those. But whatever. A couple World Series games, Saturday. Mm-hmm. You start it during the day. You know, maybe you start one depending on what stadium you are playing in. The time zone start at 5 or 6 o'clock mm-hmm. so that a kid comes home from school can watch the game, can see the end of the game before he's got to go to bed. Make sense? Yeah, I don't like the 5 or 6 o'clock start, though. I don't like I, – I mean – I love the 5 o'clock start. Oh, jeez. They did a couple of those during the pandemic. Remember they were starting games early during the pandemic? Yeah, I, I hate the shadow. I, 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 well, that's what I'm saying. depends on the time zone you're in. Right. Okay. I, I If you're in the Eastern and it's like all of a sudden batters can't see for two innings, that's fine. But if you're in the West Coast, the 5 o'clock there is, is – you know, is it five o'clock here is two o'clock there. You can do it. Do you ever do you ever play baseball where there's a shadow between the oh, mound yeah. and the front uh, plate? Uh, oh yeah, you, you can't see. You it. cannot I, see the ball. Yeah. I was a little league catcher. The ball disappears. Yeah, I played catcher in little league, and I did it. I would I would like not see the ball. Ha- you would panic because it's like coming at me. Yeah, and I wouldn't see it. I know. It, I I got that, but you understand what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I mean, listen. One of the things that bothers me about all all professional sports is the the, the times. They are slaves to television. If, yep. te- if television tells you, to, hey, you're playing the game at 2 in the morning, guess what? They'll play 2 in the morning. Yes, but the NFL had night games in the playoffs but had day games in the playoffs as well. Right. And, like, can we do some of that? Oh, I, I would 
fully be in favor of that. And I've talked about it on here. If I owned the Phillies, I mean, every Saturday home game would be a day game. I would play my weekend games Saturday and Sunday. Both would be day games. Mm-hmm. They, that's, you know, I think that, that that's a great opportunity to get kids to the game. Yeah. Saturday night games just to me are, are just a huge waste of an opportunity to get oh. kids into the ballpark. Yes, I hear you. Uh, Robert in Germantown, you're on with Ray and Glenn. Hey, Robert. Hey, guys. How are you doing today? All right. So a quick trivia question. Uh, I know you wrote a wonderful book about sports and movies. Uh, I became a New York Yankees fan in Winnipeg, Manitoba at age nine because of a movie that starred Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. Safe at home, right? Yep, that's the one. And they had such wonderful characters Good back work, then. How, yeah, Yogi <laughs> Bear. Yogi Bear. I don't know if that made your book, but uh, it turned me into a Yankee fan. And, and living in New York for several decades, um, I loved watching players like Ricky Henderson. You know, steal bases, uh-huh. bunch his way on. Uh, grew up watching TV, Lou Brock stealing yeah. bases. You know who I loved Tim, in that era? I loved Tim Raines. He was my favorite yeah. of, of that Tim. kind of player. I loved Tim Raines. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, and I'll tell you another quick story. I'm, I'm in Chicago going to seminary at Notre Dame, and I was there when Mike Schmidt had, what was that score? You guys remember, 17-something? Oh, I think 23 to 22 or yeah, something? Yeah, I think it was 24-23. Yeah. yeah, I was at that game. But here's the point. Back then, it was wonderful, Ray. It's one thing I disagree with you guys. I don't mind the long game. I'm kind of a Zen Buddhist. I could sit on a nice afternoon. And in Chicago in those days, you remember, didn't have lights. It was marvelous. All the games were afternoon games. Right? Well, you got several things going here, okay? Uh, we, yeah. we agree we like afternoon games, but they're not going to all be afternoon games. That's just not going to happen. I can't go in the afternoon <laughs> most of the time. Uh, however... Long games are good when there's a lot going on, when they're really exciting. Right. If it's a long, well, that's fine. But the problem with baseball is it's a three-and-a-half-inning game, and there's no, there's no plays. It's three-and-a-half innings because they're changing the pitcher every five seconds, and it's three-and-a-half right. three innings because the batter keeps stepping out of the box. It's not yeah. like you're getting three-and-a-half hours of action. No, I'm, I'm with you guys. I, Dad and I loved the days when, like, who was that pitcher who won 30 games? Danny McLean, right, for the Tigers back yep, in the day? 1968. Uh, are you the gentleman, by the way, who sent us these books? Is that correct? That would be me. I hope oh, you enjoy them. We just got them today, as a matter of fact, and I really that was very nice of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Well, well no, I, I know you love beer, beer, Glenn, and I saw those in a used bookstore in Chestnut Hill, and I said, well, here's a man who loves his beer and is a connoisseur. You deserve to have something like that, along with all your sports books. Well, it was, um, it was very, it was very nice of you, and and much appreciated. It was very nice. Yeah, yeah. Beers of the world. Mm-hmm. It's a handsome book. A, had yeah. you had you ever seen it before? I don't believe I have. There you go, coffee table book. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going through this book like had it, need it, had it, need it. And he also sent me the uh, the autobiography of Al Michaels, which I had already read, but I've now bequeathed to you. Yeah. I highly recommend it. Al Very Michael's nice. book is, as those books go, those autobiography memoir type things, that's really one of the better ones. It's quite good. 215-592-9494. We're looking forward to your calls. It's funny. We started talking about James Harden and the Sixers and that Ben Simmons has this sudden back injury that's going to keep him from playing for who know how long. Well, certainly through March 10th, we agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to get some more calls on that as the Sixers play the Knicks coming up in under two hours. Uh, we've talked some baseball today, which is always good. Uh, we have our best of Tell Us Your Story at noon coming up next. Uh, what we're watching, and I'm going to tell you about a, a compelling documentary that I think you should, four-part series, 
I think everybody should uh, should watch. 215-592-9494 with Ray Dinger. I'm Glenn Mack now on 94 WIP. All right. What we're watching is sponsored by Guide Door and Window. Take advantage of Guide Door and Window's big winter sale through February. Receive 40% off all windows and doors. Call 1-877-GO-GUIDE or visit goguida.com. Uh, before I get to the show that I want to talk about, Ray, yes. uh, I read the other day that they are rebooting Law and Order. I saw that. Start, actually, I guess they did. It says starts February 24th, so I guess it already started. Uh, new stars, if you know any of these names, you're better than me. Hugh Dancy, Jeffrey Donovan, Odelia Halevi, Cameron Mannheim. Cameron Mannheim's yeah. been around. Yeah, I know Cameron Mannheim. And uh, Anthony Anderson. I know Anthony Anderson. He was on it before, right? He was on the last one of in, them. the last incarnation. He was one of the detectives, yes. And Sam Watterson to offer guidance as venerable district attorney Jack McCoy. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't watch a lot of TV. Very little. But you always liked Law & Order. Right. Is Ray Dittinger in? I was very excited when I saw that was coming back. I did. I forgot that it was this. They debuted it this week, so I did not get to see the first episode. But I'll check it out, sure. Yeah, because I thought the the original. I mean, they've had twenty different versions of it since then, and and a hundred different cast members. Uh, but I thought the original show that I sort of stumbled upon by accident years ago, uh, actually back when Michael Moriarty was the was the assistant district attorney. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and and Chris Noth was one of the detectives way yeah. back. Uh, I thought it was a tremendous formula. Uh, and Munch, I, they had too, right? Hmm? Munch, what's his name? Um, the skinny committee, Richard Belzer. No, no, he was, he was, he's special victims. Oh, okay. Uh, he was not, uh, you're, right. you're thinking of Jerry Orbach. Well, th- I'm thinking of him too, but I was thinking of Richard Belzer. I don't, I don't know one from the other. See, this is what I know about Law and Order. I didn't really watch it much. Right. But when I watched it, I liked it. My wife, it's, it's on, it's one of those shows that's like Seinfeld. It's just always on. You turn on the TV, it's going to be on. Seems like it. And my wife, sometimes when she's cooking, whatever, five, six o'clock, and I'll come in the kitchen, she will have it on. Yes. And so I kind of know it through that. Right. The thing I do respect about that show, and you and I, I'm sure, have talked about this, is they changed the cast a lot, mm-hmm. but it always worked, and it's because the writing worked. Yes. It was a show about the writing. Well, they were very smart in, uh, I, I read a book, someone wrote a book about the whole Dick Wolf and the, and the whole Law & Order formula. Um, and it explained a lot of things that I just never really gave time to think about. But it said that the beauty of it and why it succeeded so well was it always kept this focus on the case. You know, you didn't, you didn't, you never followed the detectives home. Mm, you yeah, never followed yeah. the district attorney's home. You never got into their home life. You never got into their domestic situation, their, tr- their spouse, were they married, were they not married? There was, it was, everything was just focused on the case. So that way, over time, if you had to change cast members, it was very easy because it just, okay, that, that person leaves, the next person comes in, but the focus always stays on the case. And that's why the show endured so well. And that was one of the things that they did really well. I'm definitely going to check this out. Sam Waterston, to me, was, was the, you know, I like Michael Moriarty, but I thought Sam Waterston was, uh, was even better. Mm-hmm. And if he's part of the new show, yeah, I'm in. Okay. Um, I want to talk about a show called We Need to Talk About Bill Cosby, um, directed, produced by W. Camus Bell, former stand-up comic, maybe still a stand-up comic, but he's now no more as a filmmaker, uh, a provocative filmmaker, a guy who makes you think. 
And I've seen his CNN series, United Shades of America. I don't know if you've ever watched that. It's, it's very good. I mean, he looks at race and looks at it in a very interesting way. Anyway, uh, this is a four-part documentary series on Showtime, each one-hour episodes. And it looks, as, looks at Bill Cosby's legacy as one of the, the most popular entertainment figures of the 20th century, somebody who contributed enormously to both black causes and to white America's perception of black America, uh, a teacher, a father figure, a creator of great art, and, oh, by the way, a violent, vicious sexual predator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you that this show is not always an easy watch. Um, one, because Bell winds up talking to more than a dozen, maybe 20, I, don't, I didn't count, but so many women who tell their detailed stories about being drugged and raped by Bill Cosby over like more than 40 years. I mean, really, like going back to the show goes back to his temple years, but mm-hmm. like very soon after that. And you know that more than 60 have come out and their stories all have these common threads. And Oh, they're all very similar. Yeah, and there were people who initially thought like, nah, it can't be true. They're just trying to bring them down. But when you watch this, if you, if you haven't already been persuaded, when you watch this and you see all these women from all walks of life and they're basically all telling the same story, well, you know, you know it's, it's well, I, I conclude that it's true. Um, it's not easy to watch because like most people, I, I still struggle with reconciling the Bill Cosby I knew and loved that, sure. that guy on TV that, from, from when I was a kid mm-hmm. with this guy. Um, I remember staying up late as a little kid to watch I Spy Sure, when those spy shows were really cool back then. I, I laughed at Fat Albert. When I was a kid, I, I, my dad had one of the stand-up albums. Yeah, well, I Spy was a groundbreaking show with a, with a, with a black lead actor back in the days when nobody had yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you remember his stand-up albums? They were great. Oh, I used yeah. to listen all the time, all oh, yeah. the time. Yeah. The, so the bit we, about Noah? We, we had it. We yes. Had, we had his stand-up right. album. Um, and my kids watched Cosby on Sesame Street and, you know, Pudding Pops and the, that that guy was in our house every single day, and we thought we knew him. And, of course, The Cosby Show is one of the most important beloved shows in TV history. The Huxtable family, they were the ideal, right? It was, And it, I know how, listen, I'm a white guy, but I appreciate how it was racially important showing that a black sitcom family on TV could have, you know, the two parents and the nice home in the beautiful neighborhood and the friends and, and everything. It was, it was an aspirational show for mm-hmm. everybody. He reshaped TV. Everybody loved Bill Cosby. And then there's this monster who was convicted of being a, a serial sexual predator who operated in plain sight. And by the way, the, the, I, I should mention the 28 conviction was overturned on appeal last June because of a procedural thing by the district attorney up there who had told Cosby that whatever he said wouldn't be taken against him. Um, so the, the court had to do it. That's now being appealed. But Bell, the, the director, the producer, he spends four hours showing how somebody who did tremendous good in the world could also just perpetuate evil. And um, in, in fact, how Cosby kind of used his carefully constructed public image as a family man and a pillar of the community to feed this thing, to, to be able to get away with it. Um, I followed the case pretty closely. I imagine you did too. But I will tell you, there's there are a lot of 
of holy bleep moments in this show where even if you think you knew Bill Cosby you got, and you got this, you, you don't, you didn't. Um, and it left me with the question, how do you separate the art from the artist? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene that he shows from the Stephen Colbert show after all of this broke, and Colbert is talking to Jerry Seinfeld, and he asks Jerry Seinfeld, can you still enjoy watching Cosby? And Seinfeld says, yeah, you mean you can't? Like, it doesn't occur to Seinfeld. Um, but it's a, it's a real issue, and and I, I'll ask you in a minute how you feel about it. I've had this recently with, with Van Morrison and Eric Clapton, like kind of always two of my favorite musicians who turn out to be these crazy, racist, anti-vax conspiracy kooks. And I always loved them. And so, like, I can still listen to Layla, but, I, like, it crosses my mind. But with Cosby, like, it's the face. It's the character. You can't, I can't separate it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've considered that at all. Oh, sure. I mean, I've considered it more in the context of Woody Allen. Because I was, yeah, a, I okay, was, yeah, I was yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I was a huge, huge sure. Woody Allen fan. Right. I mean, I every time Woody Allen, a Woody Allen movie came out, I was like first in line. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought he was a genius, and prolific. I mean, every year it was a different Woody Allen movie, and they were one after another. They were all great, different. You know, he went, he evolved as an artist, and he went from sort of slapstick kind of pokey in the eye comedy to some pretty heavy stuff. But everything he did was was really brilliant. I thought. Uh, and then the stories come out about his involvement and the child molestation with his daughter. And um, and the more we learned about him, it just, you know, I can't watch yeah. Woody Allen. Yeah, I get that. I can't watch Woody I, Allen. I, so I, a, lot of, a lot of what you're saying about Cosby, I sort of apply to Woody Allen. I Absolutely. It's a great parallel. Um, this one takes the cake. Um, look, it, all, it talks about race, which I know makes people squeamish. Uh, but W. Camus Bell is great. Because he, he goes into it honestly. He explains how conflicted he is. Somebody who was a black comedian who grew up with Bill Cosby is the person he aspired to be. Um, he is great at examining the legacy um, and kind of discussing his own discomfort. Uh, the show is we need to talk about Cosby. It's, it's hard to watch at times, and, and kind of that's the point. It brings up a lot of the same feelings that Bell is working through. Um, but I, I, I give it an A. I, I, it's, it's must watch. So I've, I've read some stuff about it and everyone is in agreement that it's extremely well done. Yeah. It's great. Uh, and I recommend it to anybody, but just, you know, with the warning that like, it's not all pleasant. I understand. Yeah. All right. Uh, Chuck in Hatboro has been hanging for a while. Chuck, what's on your mind? Oh, it's, it's a long time since I called your show. All right. Here's why I want to tell this is specifically to Ray, right? First of all, uh, how did Paul Horning win the 1956 Heisman <laughs> Trophy when he had three touchdown passes, 13 interceptions, and lost to the Oklahoma team that had two candidates for the Heisman Trophy by 40 to nothing? Uh, correct. Right? And his team finished 2-8. and eight. How in the world did he win that? It helped that he went to Notre Dame. Uh, oh and God, uh, but he was terrible. The team was, and the team was three and seven. Uh, it was, I think I it's, thought they were two and eight, but nevertheless, whatever. Okay. Uh, they were the. That's the only time in in the history of the Heisman Trophy that they've given the Heisman Trophy to a guy who played on a losing team. Uh, and yeah, I mean, everybody kind of agrees that it was an injustice, but that was that was the way <laughs> that was the way it went down. It, I mean, there's no there, I there's just no read d- about it because uh, Jerry Tubbs got about the same amount of votes as. Uh, 
that's Tommy McDonald. But Ray, was it was know. it the was it the blonde hair? Was it the the the, the Adonis looks? I'm I'm I mean I'm serious. You know, was it was there something else at uh, play? No, I mean they they just they, they just had a really great publicity machine at Notre Dame back then, and 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 Notre Dame guys, if you they were on a real run of winning Heisman trophies. I mean they were winning them pretty much one year after another, and. You know, Paul looked the part, and he was well-spoken, and the university got behind him, and he kind of became the face of the, fr- uh, the face of the franchise, as it were, even though at that point it wasn't a particularly good franchise. Uh, and, yeah, he won. And, it's, uh, it, you know, I mean, there was no question Tommy was the best player and on the best team, the undefeated Oklahoma Sooners. Um, but I think probably what hurt a little bit was there was another Oklahoma guy, and the caller mentioned Jerry Tubbs. They kind of split the vote. I mean, they kind of got. What position did Jerry Tubbs play? He was a he was a linebacker. He was an All American linebacker. So the two should have been a guard. So the two Oklahoma, so the two Oklahoma guys kind of split the Oklahoma vote, and with the power of uh, Notre Dame, the publicity machine, and the Catholic vote, you know, Paul Horning snuck in there and won the Heisman Trophy, which he, for the rest of his life, admitted that you know I probably don't deserve this. A lot of what he did at Green Bay becomes goes on and becomes one of the all time great players, and 176 points scored in a 12 game season. Still one of the most amazing feats in the NFL. Great, great player. Mm, but the Heisman Trophy, that I mean, that's that's the one award that he probably didn't deserve. Um, don't you think a guy named Tubbs should be an offensive lineman? That'd be good. Yeah. Fits. Well, actually, back then, he was. I mean, he played both. Yeah, play. There you that, go. Those, that was back in the days when guys would play both ways. So he was an offensive lineman, but when he came, offensive lineman and linebacker, but when he came to the NFL, he played linebacker. For the Dallas Cowboys. 215-592-9494. Stick around. By the way, coming up at noon, uh, Ray and I are going to uh, have a best of Tell Us Your Story. You definitely want to be part of that. Ray it's a real good one. You definitely want to stay tuned for that. Absolutely. Oh, look, I see an old friend on the line. <laughs> Hang in, Linda. Ray and Glenn on 94 WIP. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now. Hey, let's talk to an old friend of ours. If I get this mouse working, there it is. Linda from Bella. How are you, my friend? Uh, hello, fellas. Uh, or Diddy, I have to tell you, I still love you. You're Why, still you. my favorite guy, you and Glenny. My girlfriend's dog, R. Diddy, got a sister named Ramona Diddy, <laughs> and they're both in uh, Havertown uh, feeling happy and fat. I just that? wanted you to know that. Well, yes. I appreciate that. Ray, in my neighborhood, there's a dog walking a, around with your name. There's a dog named after me. I got a, you know and what? I got call those out. weird teeth sticking out at the bottom. It's hysterical. Oh, it's good. Well, so uh, do I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one aside first. Um, you know, I just found out my favorite comedian, Jerry Lewis, was a nasty human being. And did far worse than Bill Cosby, although I'm not um, forgiving him. Yeah, I, uh, Jerry Lewis I, I, was a I don't, son of a gun. Yeah, I, I don't know what he did, but I appreciate what you say, which is if it's somebody that you you like and you hold up to an ideal, it does. It hurts when you learn that stuff. Because I have all his movies, and I love him. Yeah. Anyhow, baseball. I love my Brycey guys. But if he would stop fixing his gloves after every attempted swing, we could move along a little bit. And the guys that go up there and swing, when there's nothing to swing at in between pitches, I like to smack their little backsides too. 
I think you just want to smack the backsides. Well, that's all right. I'm old. I can do what I want. The second thing is uh, James Harden is smooth as silk. Smooth as silk. I was so surprised, guys. My mouth was hanging open. Uh, I couldn't believe how beautifully he fit in. And if you watched him on the floor, he was trying to help uh, Maxie. But pointing them to certain out certain things, he was wonderful. Yeah, I couldn't have been happier. Yeah, it was great. That was really fun to watch. You're right. You're right, Linda. All right, Linda, we got time for one more thing. You got a Russell Wilson issue you want to bring up? Yes. Well, I want to know both of you guys. Uh, I'm torn because I like Jalen, but uh, what do you think, Ray and Glenn? Should we trade for Russell? I love you. I'll talk to you later. All right, Lenny, be well. Be well. Well, you and I have talked about this. Uh, in my mind, if you can get him on the cheap, I would do it. But yeah. you're not going to get him on the no, cheap. No, you're not. So I'll go with the 23-year-old kid who I thought had a pretty decent year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to the playoffs. So nobody, Very few people thought that this team had any chance at the playoffs. So this kid took you to the playoffs his first year, and he's still learning. So I want to give him another year to grow. And I, I really do think, if you look at that defense, that defense needs a lot of work. And there's so many good defensive players in this draft. I mean, you have a chance to really change the face of your defense in one year, one draft, if you pick the right players. I want to keep the picks. Yeah, you know the argument that I can't stand? Ah, Howie Roseman's going to get it wrong anyway. Don't bother. Mm -hmm. Like that dumb defeatist attitude of, like, why should we even draft? Right. Okay. Don't need to pursue that. No, there are some – they're just really good players in this draft. And you see – I mean, you see the difference what one really elite defensive player made in the Dallas Cowboys defense this year with Micah Parsons. I mean, that's one guy. If you can get multiple guys, I mean, you can really change the face of your defense really in one, in yeah. one offseason. Yep. Uh, one other NFL thing that we, were, uh, we thought we'd bring up today is the musical chairs going on with the broadcasters. Uh, Troy Aikman looks like he's about to leave. Fox um, and go to ESPN where he's going to get paid. What, 18 million? Is that, was that the number? Uh, yes. <clears throat> okay. Uh, let me see if I got this right. Jack- actually, actually, five years, five years, 90 million. So oh. that's what, that's about what it breaks down to. Uh, yeah. Uh, Al Michaels was going to jump to Amazon and now there's thought that maybe they'll get him to go with Aikman. Uh, Mike Tirico is going to, it, uh, you may have the whole list, but everybody's moving around. Yeah, Tariko is, is going to take over for Michaels on Sunday Night Football. Okay. All right. He's going to be with Collinsworth. Um, I guess Greg Olson gets moved up. I thought he did a really nice job. But Greg, uh, It looks like Greg Olson, right now, if they stay in-house, if Fox stays in-house, Olson will move up to number one. Um, there's the question, would Fox go for Sean Payton and put Sean Payton in as their number one guy right away, sight unseen? Because he made it very clear, he's, he, you know, he's he's out of coaching this year, and yeah. he wants to get into television. Yeah. Do, do you put him in a studio, or do you make him the number one person on your number one team, working with Joe Buck? I don't know. I don't know if he's any good. I think he would be. Okay. But I the, thought Olsen was very good, but he doesn't have the cachet that Sean Payton does. Um, but here, the, the the question is this, and, and you know, I talked about this a little bit off the air. I I think Troy Aikman's a good broadcaster. I like Troy Aikman as a broadcaster. Oh, I do too. Okay. I, and and I'm a believer in capitalism. People get paid what they get paid, and if they're going to pay them that, that's their decision. That's you know that's up to them. Does it really matter that much? 
do people really care when you watch a game? Mm-hmm. I mean, there will be broadcast teams. When I'm watching a game and the Eagles are bad and it's like, oh, well, this is, you know, the G team coming in here. Right. It's like, okay, well, that's not really good. But am I going to turn on a Sunday night game or a Thursday night game or another game because, oh, wait a second, this is the Romo game? Right. I don't think I do. I don't either. I either watch, you know, I watch the game because I want to watch the game. I don't watch the game to see this, oh, this guy, these guys are broadcasting the game. I got to watch this game. That doesn't, doesn't impact me. I, and I don't understand the, the networks bidding against each other for these guys um, because I really don't think people are going to watch the games that are the good games. And if it's a bad game, people are going to tune it out. It doesn't really matter who's, who's working in the booth. I don't think. I'm kind of with well, you on that. So why are they doing it? Just network competition, one up the other guy. Um, I think that that's it. I, you know, to be honest, if, if, if they, if the network guys that are running, if the guys that are running the networks, the suits that are running the networks, throwing us money around, if they just went down to the street corner in New York City mm-hmm. and just stopped the man on the street and just asked him this question, you know, do you want, when you watch the football games, do you care who the broadcasters are or do you know one from another? I mean, it's probably I'd be shocked to know, no, and I'm, watch, I'm watching the game. You know, if the if answer is good, that's fine. But I'm just tuning in because I want to see those teams play. That's really what it comes down to. You know, I, th- I think that the network's idea of creating that people watch, that people want to tune in to see Buck and Aikman. No, they don't. They want to see the game. I really, I just think it's that simple. But now, and I, and, and, and I, I 90% agree with you. And I'm, and, and I, I'm saying that because I'm saying that knowing full well that I really like Aikman. I think Aikman's really good. Yeah. I think Aikman's really, really good. But I don't watch the games because Troy Aikman's doing the game. I watch the game because I want to see the game. Yeah, a bad broadcaster can can ruin a game. But if the game's good, I'll stick with it. A good broadcaster can enhance it. But again, it's I don't think I'm hanging around just because it's is or isn't Troy Aikman. I mean, Romo annoys me to no end. He does. Come on. He's the worst. You know he's the worst. But I but liked, I, I really liked him his first year. Yeah, and then he he got carried away. He's yes, he is, and and what and and I think he really had a terrible game this year in the playoffs. I mean, his last game yes. was a terrible. Yes, game where yes, he, he totally where he said, oh, "They want to let him score here." What? Yes. What are you talking? about? Yes, yes, and he also let his cowboy colors show in that game, mm-hmm. which you know was despicable. Uh, but nonetheless, okay, I'm just glad we covered that. Uh, let me sneak in a call or two here, and then we will uh, hit our. Best of Tell Us Your Story, Jerry in Newfield. Jerry, where's Newfield? Newfield is uh, right near north of Violent, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Okay. Nice. Nice to hear from you. All right. Uh, thank you. First time, long time. You guys are the Mount Rushmore of the of this station. Oh, thank you so I'm much. You're, you're very kind. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate that. All right. The reason I'm calling is the baseball. When I was a kid, I'm 61 now. When I was a kid, every day after school, we would play baseball. Every day, my grandkids don't play baseball. I don't see anybody playing baseball. Yeah, that's um, that's a that's a my, big problem, Jerry. We we were talking about it yesterday. I agree with you one hundred percent. My mother was a huge A's fan. Like she went to the A's when they were in Philadelphia when they moved to Oakland. I remember in the seventies when Oakland was in the World Series. I would come home during the day. My mom would have her pom poms and her colors on, and we would watch the game together. It was just so awesome. We need baseball during the day. We absolutely need baseball during the day if they're going to stay in it. 
Yeah, I, I'm, and I mentioned this a little earlier in, this, in the hour that if I were if I were the owner of the Phillies, every home game on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, would be day games. It would just be I would do absolutely. it. Absolutely, I would absolutely do it. And I I really think it's it's a way that you can introduce the game to kids. It's a chance to bring kids to the game and hopefully hopefully build a generation of baseball fans. Yeah, I I don't know how how and why they've ignored that, but they've ignored that. And yeah, that's. It ain't going to happen, not in these negotiations. They're more concerned, Ray, about whether 22% of these second-year-plus players are eligible for arbitration. That'll impact your enjoyment of the game. It's, is Rob Manfred the worst commissioner in sports? Oh, it's a lot of steep competition. It's real tough one, competition there when you're talking about the who, that race to the bottom of who's the worst commissioner. Yeah. And you certainly know my opinion of Roger Goodell. I do. I I. You know, to me, Rob Manfred, but it's neck and neck now. It's certainly something to aspire to. Yeah. Uh, John in Kentucky. What's going on, John? Hey, good morning, Glenn. Hey, uh, Ray, I have learned more about football listening to you on TV and, and on this show. But I'll tell you what, it is an absolute treat to hear you talk about baseball. And uh, I want to bring up from the perspective of someone who is an umpire uh, to let you know there are games that are played in under three hours sometimes under two hours to the college. It's the college and the high school level. I know that they don't have commercials to worry about, but it points out to me, from my perspective, there's an enormous problem with the game that needs to be fixed within the umpire ranks for two reasons. Number one, if you look at the quality of the umpires in the major leagues, it's, it's borderline atrocious. And I don't know why, if it's because their union is so strong, but there is no reason for the last 10 years we had to put up with you know, Joe West, who is because of his age and not taking care of himself, couldn't bend over to see a strike zone anymore. Um, thank God he retired this year. Or I was just, just going to say, if you're worried about Joe yeah. West, he, he's finally retired. Yeah. yeah, thank God. Or But Angel Hernandez is still there. And terrible. I don't know if you – Yeah, he's uh, terrible. Oh, he's terrible. He's sure. terrible. So it, what does that lead? It leads to people trying to bring in things like robot strike zones, and, and, and there's no need for that. Umpires don't have to – don't have to worry about the speed of the game like NFL refs have to do or NBA refs have to do or, God, hockey refs have to do. It, it's, it's right in front of you. So to have their performance level as it is, it's, it's, it's just intolerable, and that needs to get fixed. The, the I, second I, I, thing, Yeah, go ahead real quick because we got to hit a break. Okay, well, real quick, the, the, the second thing is that um, they have to just apply the rules that already exist in the book. They're talking about a, 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 a pitch clock. There has been a limitation of 10 seconds for hundreds of years in the book. Also, I mean, I don't understand why we've let – they have abused the, the, the courtesy of a pitcher stepping off the mound or yes. a batter. They have. John, I, I, I appreciate why. your call. we we got to run, but I agree with, with everything you have said, and it's a good call. All right, Ray, uh, tell people what they're about to hear. Uh, this is the third installment of Best of Tell Us Your Story, uh, and it's going to be – uh, a, a show called Nice to Meet You. And it, it starts off with a lot of really cool anecdotes with our guests talking about moments in their life when they met someone either from sports or in a related field um, that they just had a very cool interaction. And to hear the, through the voice and the eyes of some famous sports people, and in the case of Jim Gardner, a famous Philadelphia news person, is really very, very, very fun and very entertaining. Stay tuned for that. Rain Glenn on 94 WIP.